Good morning to you. Uh, good to see you again for those who were here yesterday. Um, for those who weren't here yesterday, my name's Tim Ward. I'm uh, vicar of Holy Trinity Church in Hinckley in Leicestershire, and it's, um, it's great to be with you at this conference. Now, we come to uh, the third talk, and you've got handouts in your pack. So the one you'll need, if you want to follow on the handout, is the one that's headed, The Nature of Scripture, The Characteristics of God's Written Word. The Nature of Scripture. Just uh, You want to have that ready? You can scribble notes if you want, or just kind of have that to take away with you uh, for future reference. Before we dive into this, just... Um, wanted to say something which maybe in a way would summarize a little bit um, uh, what I was uh, trying to say yesterday. And that is, if we think of the Bible as a whole, as the means which God has given and chosen for the way he comes to us, to present himself to us as the God of the covenant, the faithful God, then you could think of the Bible as, as it were, the the book of the covenant. Now, in fact, that phrase is used in the Old Testament to describe parts of the Old Testament. Someone might then legitimately ask the question, well, how is the whole Bible the book of the covenant? Because you've got all sorts of different writings in it, and they don't all look explicitly like covenant writings. They're not all, as it were, explicitly part of a promise. But actually, if you think of the Bible as the covenant book, then you can make good, coherent sense of all the different kinds of writing and all the different um, themes and strands within the Bible. So, of course, there are explicit promises within Scripture, the particular covenant statements. Uh, then you have um, apocalyptic writing, like uh, second half of Daniel, book of Revelation, that looks way off into the future. And the point of that is, of course, a covenant implies if we behave in a certain way towards the Lord, then we'll find blessing. If we disobey him, we'll find cursing. And that's what the apocalyptic writings give us, is the big picture of what will happen if we are faithful to God or if we are unfaithful. It's just what you expect within a covenant. Then you have the, the letters of the New Testament, which are, if you like, um, the covenant preached and applied to specific people in specific circumstances. Then, of course, you have the, the histories and the narratives. And, of course, a large chunk of the Bible is made up of narrative, history, gospel. It's often said of evangelicals that um, it's the narratives and the histories in Scripture which we are least comfortable with. And some of the very best-known evangelical preachers of the last century have preached, let's say, an awful lot more on epistle than they have on history and narrative. But when we see the Bible as a, a covenant book, then it actually makes sense that a very large chunk of it is made up of history and narratives. Because precisely what God is doing in those is he's saying, I've made you a promise about who I am and who you are to be to me. Well, now, let me show you that in action. Let me narrate my faithfulness to you. Let me give you examples and histories of what happens when people disobey and how they disobey and how I react. Stories of how people are faithful and, and how I react. Let me give you the stories of how I have fulfilled my promises, my covenant um, in the history of, uh, of the world. 
So actually, when you think of the Bible in that overall term as the book of the covenant, I I think it's a helpful way of making sense of how all the different kinds of writing within Scripture cohere. They actually all fit rather naturally. That's what you, as it were, you might expect Scripture to be and to contain, if it's that kind of book. Uh, So now for, um, for this morning... If you're someone who has been taught or read widely in Christian doctrine, we now come to some of the terms about the Bible that you are most familiar with. The sufficiency of Scripture, the clarity of Scripture, necessity. Although it's not on the handout, I'll say something about authority. These are terms, I said yesterday, these are terms which um, evangelicals in our talking and our writing have often uh, come up with first of all and very quickly when we want to describe what the Bible is. What I wanted to say yesterday was they're great terms but let's not jump to them too quickly. Let's have a good hard look at uh, the Bible material of which these terms are just the tip of the iceberg or, or the summary. So If in this talk, if you were here yesterday, if you have a sense that this talk is in a sense circling around the same kind of material, but as it were categorising it a bit more systematically, great, that that is the point. We're kind of, we're bringing it together under these uh, uh, headings. So firstly, sufficiency of scripture. And what I'm going to do with each of these is give you a definition, a little bit of Bible basis, some of the history of it, and then the significance, theological and practical. Now, I've given you two definitions uh, for each of these. Uh, you'll see for sufficiency uh, definition, everything that we need to know to be saved and to live a life that pleases God is taught in Scripture. And that's a fairly sort of standard definition you can find in all sorts of Christian books. Uh, and it's a fine one. For each of these I've given you as it were, my slightly alternative version, a kind of restating of it, making explicit Scripture as the covenant book. So, alternative way of rephrasing that would be, the Bible is itself God's complete covenant promise to us. We've already had Psalm, part of Psalm 119 read, which says, if we know Scripture, then we will be godly if we are doing it. Everything we need to know to be faithful to the Lord is here for us in Scripture. Um, Turn to that last reference there, uh, Revelation, the very end of the book of Revelation. Here's how the Bible ends, as John writes, John uh, Revelation 22, verse 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this scroll, if any one of you adds anything to them, God will add to you the plagues described in this scroll. And if any one of you takes words away from this scroll of prophecy... God will take away from you your share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this scroll. He who testifies to these things says, yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Now, of course, in in John's mind, as he was writing this, uh, this relates uh, directly to this book we call Revelation that he was writing. But most likely, 
in a way that um, went beyond what John consciously intended, but is in God's divine intention. These words occurring right at the end of the canon of Scripture also look back over the whole of Scripture and mark its closing, that there is no more Scripture now to be added, but we wait, trusting in the Lord, faithful to his word, waiting for the Lord Jesus to come again. Scripture is sufficient. Now, the history... And for each of these, you'll see there, well, this one I've given you four quotes. I'll read them each out in in a minute. But let me just say something about this. Um, Some people love history. Other people are turned off by it. I think I saw something in the newspaper this week about the teaching of history and how it's changed in schools over the last few decades. You may have been turned on by history or turned off by it by the way you were taught it. Um, The point of this is not so that you will remember and learn the names of all these ancient people who I'm quoting to you. If you're interested in that, great. You can chase that up if you want to. Uh, If you take nothing out of it, though, here's the reason why I'm giving it to you. And it's this. You may sometimes wonder for yourself or be given the impression by other kinds of Christians that the view you have of the Bible and the view you've been taught is, frankly, a bit of an evangelical quirk and is really only held by slightly weird, obsessive people like you and me. Now, that is just historically nonsense, although many people believe it and continue to to, to teach it and write it. And I've given you these quotes here for no other reason than to give you some confidence that the view of the Bible that I trust you've been taught in your own church uh, and that you're hearing over these two days is the solid, mainstream, standard, orthodox teaching of the Christian church. Of course, there have been byways where people have taken deviations, but it's deviations that they have been. Of course, doctrines have developed. So you might find someone in the 16th century saying something in a different way with an awful lot more detail and nuance than might have been said in the 3rd century. Of course, things develop uh, and are moulded. That's why I'm giving you this history, though, that what we believe is the orthodox mainstream church teaching. So, on the sufficiency of Scripture, here's a quote from a man called Athanasius from the 4th century. To be sure, the sacred and divinely inspired Scriptures are sufficient for the exposition of the truth. The next one, Augustine, the outstanding figure of the early centuries of the Church. Among the things that are plainly laid down in Scripture are to be found all matters that concern faith and the manner of faith, to wit, hope and love. Now, just to pause, it's important to add, it's going to give you the fuller picture. Uh, Characters like these don't only say this. So, uh, in Augustine, you can find things said about the traditions of the church, which many people think were were the seeds which grew to what became what we would now call Roman Catholic teaching, the teaching of the medieval church, which gave a a higher place to uh, traditions than scripture would allow. But the kinds of things that um, I've just quoted from Augustine, you can find him saying clearly too. Even in the next character there, Thomas Aquinas, the outstanding figure of the medieval church from the 13th century, who says things about traditions outside of scripture, which we would want to say uh, we don't want to accept. You could nevertheless find him saying statements like this, the truth of faith 
is sufficiently plain in the teaching of Christ and the apostles. And then one from the, uh, the Protestant Reformation, from a church confession of the 16th century. Biblical scripture alone deals with everything that serves the true knowledge, love and honour of God, as well as true piety and the making of a godly, honest and blessed life. Now, some of the significance of this. Uh, and what I want to say with each of these headings is, um, let's understand it fully and rejoice in all that it's saying, but let's always be careful of not over-applying it, as it were, not taking a doctrinal heading and giving it lots of meaning that actually we can't really find taught for us in Scripture. First uh, aspect of the significance there is this. With the sufficiency of Scripture, we're not claiming that the Bible necessarily speaks exhaustively or directly on every issue it touches on. There can be a tendency, a tendency amongst people who love God's word to imagine that every time it mentions or touches on a particular issue, God must be giving us in Scripture a, a fully rounded uh, set of teaching on that issue and we've got to mine Scripture to put it together. Well, it... That would be, I think, an example of, as it were, the doctrine driving the engine rather than the Bible driving the engine at that point. Um, let God tell us in Scripture how clear he wants to be on every particular topic he addresses. Maybe there are some things he just touches on, but he doesn't give us a fully rounded teaching because he doesn't teach us everything. Uh, second, the key part of significance here is it. The church has no extra teachings which we must acknowledge as being from God. We are not required to do anything that is not commanded in Scripture. And that was the heart of the Reformers' doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture in the 16th century. They were grappling with people who were saying, yes, excellent, the Bible's great, there's lots of good stuff in there from God for us, but the apostles also handed down important things to us often about church practices and practices of worship, um, orally, that the church has received, and those are as important as the Bible. And the reformers to that wanted to say a resounding, no way, no way. Everything the apostles wanted to tell us under God's providence is here for us in Scripture. Third aspect of the significance of sufficiency to believe in the sufficiency of Scripture is not claiming that God does not continue to speak. And I put that in inverted commas, that is, that prompting, guiding, and directing without directly using the Bible. But no contemporary words from God are to be placed on a level with Scripture. And again, a big area I know, but some folks have wanted to take the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture and say, well, that means that um, we'll be really wary of God in any sense guiding us on any issue, seeking his leading on any issue which Scripture doesn't directly address. Well, no, no, the sufficiency of Scripture doesn't lead you to that. But what it does lead you is to saying, if I have a sense of God as it were speaking, prompting, guiding, nudging, leading me in any particular issue where scripture is not speaking to me directly, maybe something to do with the details of my life or my church's life. Sufficiency of scripture, of course, leads me over to that. God can do what he chooses. 
But what the sufficiency of Scripture warns us against is ever treating that as the Word of God in any way that would put it on a par with Scripture. That's the sufficiency of Scripture. Uh, and I think, actually, just a final word on that. Um, that will be important, won't it? When yeah, let, let me put it this way. I, I think when, when I talk to friends who are much more charismatic than me, what they think I do is imagine that when the sermon has ended and the Bible's been closed, God is rendered dumb because I've closed the Bible. And maybe they're onto something, and I want in my own life, in, the, the, in our worship service of the life of our church, to say, no, 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 God has spoken, and he's going to continue to speak to our hearts, driving home the word that has been preached. We don't just close our Bible, sing the final hymn, and go home. There is an interaction with God still to be done, because he doesn't shut up, as it were, when the Bible is closed. But I would want, what I would want to say back to some of them is, what I worry about what you guys do is, although you tell me that in th- you genuinely think this is the word of God, absolutely, I come to some of your meetings and I see you happy that people seem to be more likely to rejoice in God has spoken when it was something that was a prophecy or not to do with the Bible. And I don't hear always the same kind of joy and excitement when it's the Bible that's been preached well. So, in a sense, we, as it were, we say those two things to each other. Uh, perhaps we both need the critique. Uh, let's move on. The clarity of Scripture. Uh, you see, I put there um, in brackets, perspicuity. That's um, sort of the older term for it. Perspicuity just means clarity. Perspicuity is a rather unclear word for clarity. That's a very lame doctrinal joke. Now, again, let's uh, work our way carefully through these steps so we know what we're talking about. Here's a kind of standard definition. The Bible presents its teachings with sufficient clarity that those who read it carefully, seeking God's help, can understand it. And here's my take on that. Everyone who comes to Scripture wanting to understand God's covenant promise can do so. What I would feel about that first, more standard definition is it's in danger of being over-applied. It can give the impression that any believer turning up any verse in Zephaniah, if only they pray hard enough and listen to the Holy Spirit hard enough, can understand it. And if they can't, it's really their fault. Now, I don't think that's quite right. It's certainly, I think, not what the Reformers meant by uh, the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. They meant something more like what I put there at the bottom. Those who come to Scripture with an open heart, wanting to hear what God says, will get the gospel from it. There will be a number of things that they don't understand, but they will definitely get the gospel. Uh, The biblical basis, just to look at uh, a couple of references there. Let's look at those Corinthians ones. So firstly, uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 
2 Corinthians 1, verse 13. In a sense, Paul isn't teaching this doctrine explicitly here at this point. It's, um, but it's there in this kind of comment he makes to the Corinthians. We do not write to you anything that you cannot read or understand. And in hope that as you have understood us in part, you will come to understand us fully, that you can boast of us just as we will boast of you in the day of the Lord Jesus. Paul's just assumption is, I am writing to you words that you can understand. These words are, here's a distinction between external clarity and internal clarity. It's a distinction that Martin Luther makes. These are words of human, ordinary human language. They're not some kind of fancy, magical, spiritual speak. It's ordinary human language. You can understand this. If you speak the language, you can understand this. But then flick back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. This speaks more of what uh, Luther calls internal clarity. The clarity of the word as the Spirit reveals it to us in our hearts. So uh, 1 Corinthians 2 verse 13. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, explaining spiritual realities with Spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. But of course, the, the discernment that the Spirit gives is not a discernment of a meaning that is not really there in the words of the language. No, it's a, it's a grasping of the, the meaning that really is there in the words of the, lang- of, the, of the human language. But for the unbeliever, their minds are blinded to seeing its truth. Again, the history. So here's Augustine again, back uh, from the 4th and 5th centuries, who said, almost nothing is dug out of those obscure passages which may not be found set forth in the plainest language elsewhere. I just want to pause at that point. Um, I find that an incredibly helpful thing to say to all sorts of Christians, particularly younger Christians who feel that they're struggling with the Bible. I don't always tell them it's a quote from a bloke who lived 1,600 years ago, or maybe I should do. Maybe they'd find that helpful. You know, people who don't know the Bible all that well struggling to get to grips with it. I think often get into a kind of a a, a vicious circle of lack of confidence with Scripture. You know, maybe they're, they're rightly encouraged by their pastors to be exploring more and more of scripture to read it for themselves and frankly with some bits they just struggle and a very helpful thing to say to folks like that is Augustine said dot 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 and of course the confidence that that will give you is by and large if someone is struggling with a very difficult bit of Zephaniah well the confidence is what it says at heart is almost certainly something that basically you already know if you know the gospel and are following Christ. It's just that in that particular passage, it might have an angle or a nuance or a depth or something which will add to what you already know. But don't have a sense that in the parts of the Bible you know, there's massive stuff you, you are missing out on. Uh, growth in knowledge of scripture is less like 
an expansion and more like a deepening. And we know that. It's not that the Bible says lots and lots of different things. It's more like the Bible says a small number of things in lots of different ways. Because, of course, the Bible is leading us into a relationship with the Lord. You know, and if you're married to someone as over the years, it's not like your knowledge of them expands sideways. What happens is the better you get to know them, the more your knowledge of them deepens. So you know them on the day you marry them, but the longer you go on in a good marriage, the more and more you know them deeply and see different sides of who they are. I think that's a good kind of that's a good um, metaphor or, or illustration for what it is to to know Scripture, and I think that can give the uh, the younger Christian great confidence. You're struggling with the Bible, bit of the Bible. Don't worry. Rejoice in what you do know, and keep dipping into what you don't yet know so well, and have someone help you to see that it just teaches largely what you already know, but deepening and deepening. And that is really that one of the profound um, helps that uh, an understanding of the clarity of scripture gives us now back on the handout in history as you move on you come to the middle ages can't really find a quote uh, teaching the clarity of scripture for the middle ages because it largely got lost because what was established was the church as the interpreter of scripture what does the bible tell you ask the church ask a priest But it was a re- what the uh, Reformation saw was a wonderful recovery of what people like Augustine had taught. So here's a quote from John Calvin in a debate with a Roman Catholic cardinal. Calvin said, Seeing how dangerous it would be to boast of the spirit without the word, God declared that the church is indeed governed by the Holy Spirit. But in order that the government might not be vague or unstable, God annexed it to the word. Let me just again pause here a little bit and tell you what's going on here, what Calvin is really getting at. You could say that the debates in the Reformation, in the end, I mean, there's different ways of analysing them, but you could say they boil down to this. Where does the Holy Spirit speak authoritatively? And the answer you give to that question is going to decide a great deal about your Christian life and your church. Where does the Holy Spirit speak authoritatively? Everybody agrees that he does. The only question is where. Uh, And you might remember this threefold thing I gave you yesterday from John 16. It's really another look at that. If you think that the prime place the Holy Spirit speaks authoritatively is the institution of the church, well, then you'll be Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. If you think the prime place that the Holy Spirit speaks authoritatively is in certain particularly charismatic, spirit-filled individuals, then you'll rally around one of them. Calvin says, if you go for either of those options, in his words, the government of the church will be vague and unstable. Why? Because it will be annexed to people. And however wise and spirit-filled They may be, whatever position they may hold in the church institution, they are sinful men and women like everybody else. They will change their minds. The church will change its mind. Instead, God has, in Calvin's word, annexed the authoritative speaking of the Holy Spirit, 
He's government of the church to the word. That is the, that's the beating heart of the doctrine of the clarity of Scripture. So, uh, as Calvin says elsewhere, Scripture will ultimately suffice for a saving knowledge of God only when its certainty is founded upon the inward persuasion of the Holy Spirit. And his point is this. Your ultimate conviction that the Bible is the word of God is not to be because the Pope or some church institution tells you. The witness of the church is important, but you don't ultimately ground it there. Your conviction that God is speaking through Scripture is not because someone who tells you, he's especially spirit-filled, tells you what the Bible means. Of course, the Lord has given the church Bible teachers and their authority counts for something. But your ultimate conviction is not to be founded there because then you're founding the authority of God on a man. No, no, your ultimate conviction that Scripture is the Word of God and the Holy Spirit speaks supremely authoritatively through there is the inward work of the Holy Spirit in you persuading you that it is so. I think I have a little bit more to say about that in the next and last talk. The significance of this, first theologically, neither the teaching office of the church nor an individual who claims to be particularly spirit-filled can claim to be the true interpreter of Scripture. Your appointed pastors and teachers have an authority, but it is not the authority of everything I say is, thus says the Lord. It is an authority of, thus says the word of God, and when I'm teaching you that, thus says the Lord. Second, The Holy Spirit is at work through the word to illumine the word. He is not primarily at work through the church or an authoritative individual to illumine the word. Whenever Christians have given ultimate authority to an institution or an individual, in the end it is led astray from the word of God. So you see, from... uh, The point of view of someone like Calvin, the Protestant Reformation. Although the Roman Catholic Church on one end and the Radical Reformation, the hyper-charismatics, if you like, on the other end, although they look wildly different, although they look like opposite ends of the spectrum, Calvin wants to say they've made precisely the same mistake. They said the prime way the Spirit speaks authoritatively is through human beings. Calvin says, no, no, it is through the written word of God. Now, at stake here, third under theological significance, at stake here is a biblical doctrine of the Trinity. This is not just playing games. Uh, You know, pay your money and take your choice. No, no, at stake here is the Trinity because we must not separate Scripture, which is the speech or the speech action of the Father and the Son. We mustn't separate that from the action of the Holy Spirit. And if we do we have in some way attempted to rip apart the work of the Holy Spirit from the work of the Father and the Son. 
Because scripture, as we saw yesterday, is given to us by all three members of the Trinity working together. That practically. It's not claimed that the Bible is necessarily clear on every topic it touches on. Here's the same thing, as we said, under sufficiency. Just because the Bible speaks about something doesn't mean it's automatically clear. Um, I, I could give examples here which are bound to get me into trouble, so I, I probably won't. Um, but just because the Bible mentions something doesn't mean it's going, necessarily going to be crystal clear on it. You can't decide that in advance. Do your work on Scripture and decide whether God has chosen to speak in a crystal clear way about it. Second, the necessity of biblical scholarship is not denied here. Remember, the clarity of Scripture is not about you and you on your own with the Holy Spirit in your heart can frankly understand every bit of the Bible if you pray hard enough. Uh, there has, as you know, the long tendency in certain branches of evangelicalism to be very sniffy of biblical scholarship. Understandably so, for some, uh, from some perspectives. But God has given the church people with, with great minds and great intellects and great learning. That doesn't mean that they'll always be right. You know, some of the cleverest people in the world are, are the most foolish. But if people have learnt the biblical languages and they're godly people and they've done the work, we thank God for them. Uh, third, the right authority of the traditions of biblical interpretation is not denied. Uh, now, again, Evangelicals have often been, uh, been people who have wanted to be quite rude about tradition. One can understand why, because from the time of the Reformation, it, it was a certain kind of tradition that the Reformers rightly fought hard, hard against. But there is a very good sense of tradition, and that is all the understandings of Scripture that have been passed down to us. We are not the first generation to read the Bible. You don't have to reinvent the Christian faith every Sunday morning. These things have been passed down to us. And good books of doctrine and good commentaries give you a, uh, the culmination, the, the, the best fruits of 2,000 years of work. And when your preacher stands up to preach to you, if he's done his work properly, he won't be quoting this theologian or that theologian, I hope, because it's not a lecture, but you will trust that he's done the work that what he's giving to you is partly the fruit of not only his own labor for himself in the study, but also his reading on what previous generations have thought about that part of scripture. We stand on the shoulders of others, many of whom have been more godly, more learned than we are. Fourth, Clarity, with the clarity of Scripture, it's not claimed that hearing God speak in Scripture is a primarily individualistic event. Now, again, I am hugely grateful that I've been brought up in a, as a Christian in a Christian culture which has strongly encouraged me to read the Bible on my own a great deal. And I'm very, very grateful for that. But I don't think that should take our eye off the, off the ball. And the ball is that in the, at heart, the hearing of Scripture is primarily a corporate event. 
Um, I haven't thought this through fully. I'm sure some of you will be further ahead on it than I am. But increasingly, I want to encourage myself and people in my church that their Bible reading in the week will at least be partly following directly on from the scripture that they heard, read and preached on the Sunday. I want to think more about how we do that. Rather than, as it were, um, my own private reading of scripture during the week is the main way I encounter the Bible, and then on the Sunday I kind of sit back and listen to some interesting Bible teaching. I think I'd want to switch that emphasis more the other way around. Not to put people off reading the Bible on their own, but actually to encourage them to do it all the more. Read on the back of what you heard on Sunday if you do no other Bible reading for yourself. And final part of significance here. A diversity of interpretation does not necessarily mean that Scripture is unclear. Um, I'm leading a Christianity Explored group at the moment, and there's one guy there who I don't think is yet saved, who is really troubled by the fact that Christians disagree on a whole bunch of issues. And that worries him that the rest of the Bible is unclear. Well, I think we need to say it need not, because remember, it's not as if the Bible is fact one, fact two, fact three, you know, down to fact 3,924. No, no, the Bible is more like here is a centre of truth presented to us in a whole series of different ways. And of course, there are many, many things that fill that out. Well, I want to keep saying to this guy is, you know, what's remarkable is the times I've been to Africa, I meet people from an entirely different culture and they talk about the same Jesus I do. That's, That's the clarity of Scripture at work. When they read Scripture, they meet the same Jesus. That's clarity. Uh, Much more briefly, necessity. This might be the term you've heard less often, although actually it was quite a big term for the reformers in the 16th century. Uh, The necessity of scripture means this, we cannot be conscious of entering into and remaining in a right relationship with God without encountering what God says in the Bible. Or, we cannot consciously put our trust in God's covenant and thereby put our trust in God without the Bible by which God declares his covenant to us. That just puts under the heading of necessity something I said yesterday. Because of who God is, of how he chooses to relate, he speaks, he gives us a covenant. That has to be spoken. It's got to be in words. There have been strands of Christian thought which have said, yes, okay, but isn't the heart of God's word a proclamation, something spoken? Because isn't that lively? You've got somebody in front of you, a person speaking it to you. Isn't speech, oral speech, somehow livelier than written words which have a kind of deadness to them? There have been quite strong strands of Protestant theology that wanted to say that. I think a good response to that is, well, There is a right personal proclamation of the gospel. But God had his word written so that it would be reliably preserved for us. We should rejoice in it. If we had no written word from God, we would rely on the passing on and the passing on of what is purely oral. It's actually a great mercy from God and a glory that we can read exactly what they wrote and be confident that that is what it is. It is because God is faithful 
He will say tomorrow what he said yesterday about the gospel. The gospel doesn't change. And so the the writtenness of scripture just gives us a wonderful confidence that that is true. Because of time, I'll just skip over. Uh, Let's just drop down to the um, theological and practical significance. Uh, General revelation, that is what God reveals to us about himself through creation, cannot be the basis of saving faith. You you can't learn about Jesus by admiring a sunset. Uh, And constant engagement with scripture must be central to Christian living. Now, let me say a couple of things by way of conclusion. Uh, under the summary, the first one, as they're on the handout, sola scriptura. That may be a phrase you know. It's Latin. It means scripture alone. It was one of the great slogans that emerged from the Reformation of the 16th century. Although literally it, those two words mean scripture alone, in the context of how it was used at the time, what it means is scripture supreme. Scripture alone as the supreme authority. You can only have one supreme authority, and it is Scripture alone that is that. The reason for making that point is um, uh, in strands of evangelicalism since the Reformation, it has sometimes happened that um, sola scriptura has again, you can see a theme running in what I'm saying here, has been pushed too far to what the Reformers never meant in a way that would denigrate what previous generations of Christians said about understanding Scripture. So I can think of a guy who attended my church for a while. Uh, I was looking at Scripture with him one day, and he, um, he was coming out with an interpretation of a particular passage. Uh, and it's a passage I hadn't looked at a bit. And I said to him, well, that, that's interesting, but you need to know that I don't think there's any significant interpreter of the Bible who in 2,000 years have thought it means anything like that. And he said to me something like, well, I don't really care, frankly, because I've been praying and I've been seeking the Spirit's guiding. Now, there's a sense in which that has a ring of godliness and piety to it. If I'd been John Calvin, I'd have kicked him out of my house and out of my church and called him a heretic. So this is scripture. It does not mean scripture alone, without teaching authority in the church, without traditions of right Bible uh, interpretation. No, no, it means scripture alone is our supreme authority and not the Pope and not some bloke who tells you he's got the Holy Spirit. Final comment. I'm afraid this isn't on the handout. Um, You might have thought I would have had authority of Scripture as a big headline. But I think a helpful way to think of the authority of Scripture is the authority of Scripture is simply the sum total of everything I've just been saying in the last 45 minutes. And actually, let's always, when we use the phrase the authority of Scripture, let's always be clear that that is shorthand for the authority of God who has the right to call the shots and to say what he says and have me be submissive to what he says 
And he chooses to exercise that authority through his written word. The authority of scripture, that phrase is always shorthand for the authority of God who chooses that this is how he comes and speaks to me. That's why the Bible's authoritative. I mean, the highway code is authoritative because it's the Department of Transport who wrote it. Authority of scripture is really just the authority of God. Will you plan to sing again? Fine, okay. Well, let's just pause and um, let's be quiet for a moment and then I'll pray. Lord God, thank you for those generations of believers who have gone before us, who fought great battles, who've bequeathed to us a wonderful understanding of Scripture, which then becomes alive again for us in our own generation. Thank you for your word that speaks such truth and power to us. Thank you for your wonderful mercy that you stoop to have given us this word, so that as we know your word, it is you whom we know. Amen.